we used to live um, up north and we lived by two schools. And whenever I would drive that back route, there was a crosswalk. And even if there was no one there, no kids, no people, the crosswalk, I would drive over and go, oh my God, did I just run over somebody? That was Shana, an HR professional talking about one of the less well-known symptoms of OCD, the fear of hurting yourself or others. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, we're going to do things a bit differently. Shana's story covers four topics, OCD, PTSD, body dysmorphic disorder, and suicide. As I edited these four topics into a single episode, it felt like I was doing none of them justice. So this is the first part of a two-parter with Shana. In this episode, we'll hear Shana's experience with PTSD and OCD, including how she sets her clocks and hangs her wardrobe, how her PTSD caused her to hold so many jobs, and the challenges of treating conditions like OCD and PTSD. Remember, Shana and I are just two people talking about our personal experience living with mental illness. If you're considering a change to your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt, I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with my guest, Shana. Shana, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So tell me, Shana, what is it that we're going to talk about today? Well, today um, I'd like to talk about uh, my PTSD and my OCD and how it affected my almost 20-year career in human resources and how it's affected my life since I can remember being, you know, a young little rascal. Hmm. So, yeah. Got it. So a few acronyms in there, which people may not be familiar with. So why don't you run (laughs) us through what the acronyms are? Certainly. Um, PTSD, I think a lot of people um, can recognize that. It used to be called shell shock. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's where you, uh, you relive trauma over and over again, and you try to stay away from that. Otherwise, uh, you start to go into, not uh, kind of go into a, um, Um, a panic or anxiety. And OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. And it's uh, where you have patterns that you have to stick to in order to have the day go right. Um, You may have sayings, you may have fears of hurting someone. So, you know, kind of go into that later as to, you know, how it affected um, my job and my, my, my life. That's great. Yeah. Um, I say that's great. Of course, that's not great. <laughs> it's great that we'll go and we'll go and talk about it. Yeah. Perhaps the uh, the actual thing itself not not as great. Why didn't you pick off one of those and talk a little bit more about your experience? Okay, probably the biggest one for me is the post traumatic stress disorder. Um, I grew up in a family of seven, and my father was verbally and physically abusive and we would I would see that with all of my siblings I'm the youngest so as time went on um I would try to stay away from him or try to trigger him into his rages and I it was just a family thing you never talked about it but and you think that 
everybody else's family's like that. Everybody has a, a father or a mother who's like that. Um, so as time went on, as I grew older, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have uh, any kind of, I felt like I had no say uh, in my life. It was extremely damaging to just my self-esteem. Um, I didn't think I could do anything basically because I had been beaten down. And so what I did was I just tried to stay away from people that would trigger me. If I felt like someone was uh, getting upset, you know, the inflection in their voice, it was like, no, oh, I got to leave. I got to go. If I felt like I was in danger of possibly being uh, physically hurt, even it was, you know, it was just perceived I had to get out of there. Panic attacks would then follow, um, a depression might follow, and it just has engulfed my life. And um, it's a hard one to really deal with because they haven't really come up with any kind of medication that really can can calm it, like with bipolar or with uh, the depressive uh, disorders and things like that. But there are some things that I have done um, that I was uh, given some really good tools, um, like the uh, DBT, okay. uh, the dialectical uh, behavioral therapy, and that was uh, that was actually coined here in in University of Washington mm. by Marshall Lingham, and um, that puts you into basically a mindfulness where you stop and you think, okay, this is what is happening. You know, you, you, you know, pull back on the feelings, think about what's true. And, um, that has helped, a, that has helped quite a bit actually. As you were telling that story and talking about your childhood experience, mm -hmm. um, my mom came to my mind and she was very emotionally unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And you never exactly knew what thing was going to trigger her to have a meltdown. She wasn't physically violent, fortunately. And I was just sitting there thinking about like, oh, two HR people both <laughs> learn to read people's feelings really yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. So that was PTSD. Mm -hmm. So let's hear about OCD. Oh, okay. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I have had that as long as I can remember. It's a lot of people think of it as, oh, you know, I need to go check the, the stove and see if it's off 50 times or I need to make sure the door is locked. And that's just one aspect of it. The other one, you know, there's a few other ones. Uh, when I was a kid, if something was going wrong, I would repeat a, a phrase over and over and over. And when I repeated that phrase, things would go okay. So uh, we lived just, we lived in Kansas for a few years. And whenever there was a tornado coming, you know, tornado warning, I would start repeating that phrase and the tornado would go away. Or if my dad was in a fit of rage, go hide in the closet, repeat the phrase. Okay, it worked. And I also had another, I also had something else is I had a, a special number. Uh, it was a, a time of day. And whenever I would see it on uh, anything, you know, digital, uh, a microwave, clock, whatever, when I would see that, I knew it was going to be a good day at school the next day. It's like, wow, okay, it's going to be good. I'm not going to fail anything. I'm going to, you know, look great, feel fantastic. And ironically, that's 
pretty much usually what happened. Mm. <laughs> so, you know. So perhaps we aren't talking about OCD here. Some kind of other gift. <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> wow, that would be nice. If I could just cast a spell yeah. and make everybody happy. Um, so that, you know, that and the other, the other uh, aspect about OCD is uh, you have a fear of either hurting yourself or hurting someone else. And with me, it's not hurting someone um, purposely. It would be one time um, we used to live um, up north and we lived by two schools. And whenever I would drive that back route, there was a crosswalk. And even if there was no one there, no kids, no people, the crosswalk, I would drive over and go, oh my God, did I just run over somebody? So I would turn around like half a block away, turn around. Nope, nobody's in the street. Okay, I'm good. But I'd have to cross over that crosswalk again. Once again, oh my God, I hope I didn't hit somebody. Um, and that, maybe I'd do that maybe four or five times and then finally go, all right, it's fine. You can get down the street. Everything's going to be okay. So, you know, those are the things that I deal with with my OCD. Um, and the fact that everything needs to be as perfect as I can get it. Um, I can recall writing emails at work and starting off with something like uh, the dog had spots and looking at for an hour. And finally it came up to be, it, it came out as the house is brown. It's like, how did I get to that? Because I wanted it so perfect. I wanted it to be absolutely right, sound good, get the idea across, but because I just kept obsessing over it and making sure that it was perfect, it came out to be something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> As somebody who has also obsessed over the content of emails <laughs> in my time. Um, yeah, wow. <laughs> and then I would think about it and think, did I do, did I put in the right is the verbiage correct? Is, you know, it did I send it to the right department? Did I, you know, and it was just so I would go into my sent mail and reread it and, okay, I don't have to pull it back. I don't have to, you know, okay, it's fine. And then I would wait for my manager to come by and either tell me it was not what she wanted or what he wanted. You know, it wasn't I didn't go by what what they had told me to do. And so it was just for something as simple as a, you know, three-line email, it was it was just this huge fiasco in my brain trying to to make sure that I got it correct and even if it was correct, I never felt like it was. There was always something wrong with that. With the OCD when was the first time that was labeled for yeah. you? That was when I was um, uh, diagnosed with bipolar 1. I had been misdiagnosed for 10 years with dysthymia. The OCD, she had uh, uh, she had given me this, this large list of things of what I do, you know, things that, um, do you do this, do you do that, do you do this? I never thought I had it. I, I just assumed that Yes, I remember going back and checking the oven when I lived at home. I would be leaving and going, no, or go upstairs and make sure, okay, my bed's made correctly. Go back down. No, I got to go back upstairs so dad doesn't get mad. Make, yep, the bed's okay. Got to make sure uh, going back and forth. And that was probably the main thing that she had focused on. And then when she started to bring up the harming of, of you know, other people or yourself, the and the um just the the phrases that you use and things like that making sure 
everything it does have to be symmetrical for me. It's funny because I worked at a company called Asymmetric, so it's kind of like <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> good choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I have to have everything just in its place, perfectly lined up. You know, those are the things that you recognize of OCD. People think about that. They they go, yeah, it's the it's the whole. You have to make sure that your hands are washed. You have you know a thousand times. You have to make sure that, you know this and this and it's. I just never thought about the phrases until she had said that. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like when I was younger, I back back younger when I was doing this. Talk about perhaps the difference between liking things tidy mm-hmm. and OCD. There's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> you know that. Yeah. Um, it's it's really strange because I'm not really a neat person. I've always I'm a self-proclaimed slob. Um, I'm messy, but when it comes to things that are important, such as setting the clocks, when you have to set the clocks ahead or behind, I have to make sure that each clock turns in unison. Uh, the DVR and the the kitchen and you know all of those. If it doesn't work out for me, then that's a real problem. I mean that that's way beyond, uh, you know, way beyond normal. But when you're neat, when you're neat, you fold things, and it doesn't matter if they're a little mushy. You know, you put them away, put them in the drawer. Um, you sweep. Oh, there's a little crumb over there. That's fine. You know, the cat'll eat it or something like that. But when you're OCD, those little things, that little wrinkle in that shirt or that little crumb that's in the corner will drive you nuts if it's not perfectly, that shirt's got to be flat. And then when you put it in the drawer or you hang it up, it has to be, my my closet is colors, done by colors, you know, blacks, greens, reds, whatever. The blacks have a certain color of, of hanger. The reds have a certain color hanger. They're all in the same, you know, they have to be all in the same direction. The, you know, the the front of the shirt has to be facing, you know, east or west. They go by length. So we have the black tunics first, and then we have the black t-shirts. So it goes, you know, so it's it's perfectly lined up. Um, that I think is a little <laughs> beyond needs. Um, you know, I could just throw them in the in the closet, hang them up. Hey, great, you know, yeah. they're not gonna get wrinkled. Because I was thinking, for example, I hang my clothes in color order. Like I have mm-hmm. my whites, my blacks, my greens together. Mm-hmm. But if one's not in that section, like it's for convenience. Like mm-hmm. if that's not in that section, it's like, oh, that's not in the right place. I move it. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't stress me out. And it, you know, that sounds like a big part of the difference. Like it has to be. It has to be. Yeah. And it's almost measurable. I mean, you can look at, at my closet and if one is a little bit shorter than the other and it's in the wrong place, it's like, oh my gosh, the the, the sky is falling. I've got to get this fixed. Um, and I can go over cleaning something over and over and over. And if there's that one little spot that's laughing at me, I will just, I will make sure that it's not going to laugh at me anymore. I'm going to scrub that baby away. So it's, 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 beyond neat it's beyond clean um because like i said normally i can just sometimes drop things but there are things i have to be so so precise about it's almost like you can't not do it right exactly otherwise it it will seriously drive me to just go okay nope nope can't do it i I gotta go in there and fix it and sometimes i'll just pull them out 
and redo them because, you know, pulling one out, putting it back in the closet or uh, everything is, you know, in my drawers is color coordinated. They have to, like you said, black, green, blue. Um, if they're not folded right, if they're, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's beyond perfectionism, I think. So you organize by color first mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then length. Mm-hmm. So how about color shade, like a light green to a dark green? Does that not matter? It's, it's mm. like the length is the Preston. It has to be the, it would be like a rainbow. It would be a dark. Um, in fact, it goes, I'm trying to think it goes kind of in the color of the rainbow, all of my clothes. It goes like, um, if I have orange, then, then it's yellow, orange, red, and the light gr- and I, the lighter colors have to be before it has to be before the darker one so it looks like a little rainbow it can't be just you know willy-nilly a dark light medium right. whatever so but if you had like three black things that are all equally as black they would have to then be in length and they'd have to be length and then if they're the same length then are they henleys if they're if they're all henleys well do they have colored buttons or black buttons and so it's just it's really just it, it goes down to you know, what fiber they're made of. Right. <laughs> are they cotton? Are they polyester? There's got to be something that differentiates mm-hmm. them and make sure they're in the right place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Breaking down the stigma of mental illness means we need to educate the general populace about what mental illnesses are and what the symptoms actually look like. OCD has crept into the general lexicon as a shorthand for, I like things tidy. Hopefully Shana's examples illustrate the difference between neat and tidy and OCD. For example, I have my closet organized in color order, but I don't think too much about it if I have a red that's in the wrong place. For Shana, it isn't an option to leave her red shirts unorganized. It must be in the right order. Another important and poorly understood symptom of OCD is the fear of harming self and others. Max mentioned the same thing during his episode, and I think this is another great example of the education needed about OCD. Shana has only talked a little bit about PTSD so far, but as we move into talking about work, she's going to talk to some pretty serious ramifications of PTSD in the workplace. So maybe just talk about your career in HR, how did you get how did you get started and your your journey there? Well, I got started um, early '90s. I was basically a um, I was the HR receptionist at Eddie Bauer when they were in their heyday, and just kind of moved up, got promoted. I wanted to when I was when I was doing the receptionist. I thought, you know, would be really great. I'd love to be an employee advocate because I've seen you know I'd seen my friends you know have issues, have problems with managers and things like that, and I felt like well, you know, this would be really cool. I could be the, you know, I could help out the, the manager. I can help out the employee. And of course, that was in a time when there were employee advocates in HR. <laughs> um, that never panned out. So um, basically, I, you know, I love the job. I did benefits and orientations and payroll and pretty much everything. Um, more of a generalist type of a position yeah. where I did it, you know, just kind of a bit by bit. As time went on um, and I was learning the trade, so to speak, that's when my, I think the PTSD started to really rear its head. 
Um, you really, with with HR, as you know, you have to stick to a, a guideline. You can't really go out. You, you're protecting the company. You can tell somebody, yes, I, I'll do what I can, but you can't do right. what they probably want you to do. So I would like to put on record that that's not the way I approach HR, <laughs> but it is unfortunately the way many people approach HR. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I think when I started getting more responsibilities, so I was getting more responsibilities, was when my PTSD started to come out because I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to do my job perfectly. Um, it was, I would be hired and it was like, wow, they're really happy that I'm here because they think I know what I'm doing. Um, and I would be maybe fine for a couple months and I would do something that I felt was just horrible. And that's where the PTSD would kick in. Um, let's say that I was doing um, like a training class and I would accidentally mix up something. I thought for sure I was going to get fired. I knew when I went down to my office, my boss would be down there ready to read me the riot act. It was almost a pattern with my with my jobs. I would go there. I would get a, a job. I did really well. I would make a mistake. And then that's when I started to, to see the PTSD kick in. Whenever I would get an email from my boss, I didn't want to open it because I knew I was in trouble, so to speak. If I saw her name or his name come up on my phone, oh my God, what did I do? What what did they want? Come into my office. Oh gosh, I mean, and so it was just, it made it hard for me to work the way I wanted to work because I always had that feeling that I was going to do it wrong. Um, when am I going to get yelled at? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it happens, you know, when you're in, in just the way it is. So it was really, it was really hard to focus on my work. I loved HR. Yeah. Um, I definitely was a person that liked to work with the employees. Um, you had a job mm -hmm. and then some percentage of another job managing what was going on in your head. Oh my gosh. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So it was, it, and it wasn't a part-time job going on in my head. It was full-time going overtime. And it never really mattered what anybody said good. It just, it, it got to the point where the PTSD took over everything, where it would be, I have to make sure this is correct because I have the PTSD and BDD. They know it, so they can use it against me. And it's not in a paranoid sense. It's not like I was going, oh, they're out to get me. But it just kept going. It was like a snowball effect. It started with little things, and then it got to the point where I can't work here anymore. And usually I would have been – I was the one that left yeah. because it would be easier to leave and say, well, this just isn't working out than having your boss go – Eh, we're going to have to let you go. So you were turning over jobs maybe quicker than you would have done otherwise? Yes. I, I could tell you how many jobs I've had in the past since two, since 1997. Okay. So 2008, I had, I've had 31 jobs. Some of them lasted a day. A lot of, some of them were temp, some of them were contract. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it just depended on who I was working for, who I was working with. I would go in and within maybe two hours, my brain, you know, would assess, mm -mm, mm -mm. these people are not nice. You can tell this person's angry at you. They don't, you know, it was like back and forth. And I would just go and say, you know what? This job isn't working for me. Wow. <laughs> 
that's really i was trying to do math in my head i was like okay that's like if you did one a year that would take you through to like 2028 and we're only <laughs> in 2019 right now so that's really something and my friend was the one that kept track of them all i otherwise i would have i thought eh, maybe 10 12 she doesn't yeah. know you had about 31 gosh <laughs> and it's another interesting case where if you had been able to check in with somebody or your friend is almost checking in with you and mm-hmm. saying have you considered this behavior to be not the way that most people approach work <laughs> so one of the side effects was you were turning over jobs quickly mm-hmm. because you convinced yourself that you were doing a bad job nobody liked you etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. what other effects have those conditions had on your your jobs and your career it's really hard for me to uh, connect sometimes with people because I would think that, oh, wow, these people really like, you know, this person likes me a lot. And then something would happen where I would perceive it was, you know, negative towards me. And then I would flip on a dime and go, I don't like this person. They don't like me. I don't like them. They're no longer my quote unquote best friend. Why even stay here? It was easier for me to just say, call it quits and then I, I knew what I was doing. Um, I think I was pretty good in HR, but apparently my brain thought otherwise. It it wasn't it wasn't a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you got great feedback from the people that you worked with. The last place I was at, they brought me roses, they gave me a really pretty card. Um, they took me to lunch and it was like, oh my gosh, I guess I'm not this terrible person. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not the monster I think I am. That's right. <laughs> As two people who work in this field, my hope is there are some people from HR who are listening to this. What can we do to make work better for somebody, for example, who has PTSD, OCD? Probably the first thing would be is just to accept the fact that your employee does have a mental illness. I never revealed it until my last job when I just accidentally said, oh, well, I have bipolar. And I don't know if that was a bad thing for me to do, but it was an accident. You're always in the spotlight, so to speak. And I really think that if there was, and this sounds really cliche-ish, if there was a dialogue between the employee and their manager, and it was it was down to earth, and it was, you could feel safe in saying, look, I have bipolar, I have OCD, this is what happens. I'm not looking, for, I'm not looking for to go out on FMLA or, you know, a, a leave of absence. I'm just looking for you to, you know, I'm looking to tell you, this is what happens. And if you could, you know, understand that maybe I need to leave my office for 10 minutes and that's it. Let's maybe role play for a second here. Let's say I am an employee, Mm -hmm. come to you, you work in HR and said, hey, listen, I've been diagnosed with depression or I've, you know, I've got OCD and I've been living with it for a while and I want to talk to my manager about it. What would you suggest they do? How should they structure that conversation? Um, I would definitely let them know that to tell them to get all, you know, get all your facts together to to talk to your manager about because, you know, you hear bipolar and the first thing you think of is, oh my gosh, this person's probably going to go mad, you know, mania or whatever you want to call it because some people still call it uh, manic depression. I think the more that the employee would have to, like they're in their arsenal of, Hi, Mr. Manager or Miss Manager. You know, I talked to Shona and and she suggested that we 
we get together and and this is what's going on right now. I have bipolar, PTSD, whatever, and um, this is what happens, um, and this is what I do. This is what uh, this is what I do. I'd like to work with you and like to work with you know um, the company as to how you know I can I can I love my job. I want to stay here, and this is why I'm telling you. This is important, you know, it's it's important to me. But I, I honestly think that, you know, uh, the more you have in ways of what exactly it is you have, you know, what exactly you're dealing with, it doesn't have to go into depth. Yeah. But to say, you know, I'm I have this this uh I have bipolar and there might be some times when, you know, XYZ and let the manager know. Um, I wish I would have been able to go in and talk to my managers. I think it's, it's, it's still, I don't think it would have changed anything, but at least it would have given them a heads up. Yeah. Um, maybe it would have helped the relationship between us. Right. Um, maybe it would have, it may have changed something. Who knows? And for the manager, I think it's, you're not responsible for fixing. Mm-hmm. That's the responsibility of the person. Exactly. It, I think it's helpful to be educated. Mm-hmm. You know, pick your source, WebMD or whatever, has lots of guides for this is what that condition looks like mm-hmm. and these are the things that, that happen. And then, as you say, for the employee to be able to articulate how the thing shows up and if there's something that you need or want that would help, at least ask I was thinking as you were talking, maybe I need to go have this conversation with my manager that for me, it's okay for someone to ask me like, hey, you know, you're doing okay. Seem, you know, like a little low, you know, you've got some depression coming on. Like, I'm okay with that. Likewise, mm-hmm. if you're, you know, in a, in a kinematic state, I think it's okay for someone to call me <laughs> and say, hey, you know, like you seem like you're super aggressive at the moment or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you're running around doing 30 different things at once, you know, everything going on. And for me, because you can't always see it. Yeah. And it's helpful for me to have somebody outside and you spend so much time in your work mm-hmm. and it can be such a stressful situation that can trigger so many of these things that yeah. it feels like it would be helpful to have people at work who can support you. Yes. Definitely, definitely. And it, it's thankfully, I was lucky to have friends that um, have stayed with me after I've left the company. And it is, I think, probably that's one of the most important things is just to just to even hear somebody go, hey, how you doing? You know, you're saying you seem a little, you know, you're a little edgy, you know, or you're, you know, you've, you haven't really come to lunch with us. Is there something going on? You know, just something as simple as that, you know, can really make a world of difference. Anything else you want to say on the topic of work? You just, I think the biggest thing for me was at work, I was so, I was so desperate to make myself look good for my boss, to, to be a good employee, to be the best employee I could be, that I kind of lost sight of the, wait a minute, you know, this is making your, your illness even worse. You know, you're getting more depressed or you're getting more, um, you're getting more anxious, you're having more panic attacks. And I think you really need to look out for yourself, you know, take care of yourself. Doesn't mean you have to quit the job like I, I did several times, yeah. but 
it's really important to look out for yourself, to do everything you can to be healthy. And I, you know, I don't mean like going to classes for work or anything like that. It's, it's just do what you can get enough sleep, you know, eat right, exercise if you like to do it, just find, find an outlet. And I really wish I would have done that, but I was so, I was so focused on being such the, you know, oh, I'm a terrible employee. This is the, you know, that I just neglected myself. Anything else that you want to say before we wrap up? Basically, I think the biggest thing is is never be ashamed of of your mental illness. Um, it's part of who you are, but it doesn't mean it has to control you. There are times when it feels like you're so enveloped in it that you are bipolar. You're not. You aren't bipolar. You have bipolar. And or you have PTSD. Yeah, it, it makes up part of your personality, but don't ever be ashamed of it. And I and I hope that someday our society will truly accept someone with schizophrenia and not go, oh, just schizoid yeah. or somebody with really bad OCD and go, oh, my gosh, how many times have they, you know, just appalled? I, I really I really hope that someday that we'll we'll all understand that bipolar, major depressive disorder, they're just like diabetes and heart disease. And they're, they're just, they just are. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Shauna, thank you for your honesty, your candor, sharing some pretty deep stories with us. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me, James. I'm so glad I'm here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So that's Shana's story and her journey with OCD and PTSD. What I hadn't considered until I spoke to Shana is how difficult PTSD could make it to feel safe and form and keep relationships in work. 31 jobs in a little over 20 years is a lot, but I can understand the behavior of jumping ship before you think you're going to get pushed. If you have a mental illness and you're thinking about talking to your manager, keep Shana's advice in mind. Get your facts together, because you're going to need to help your manager understand your illness. And then, try to make it a conversation about finding a common solution that meets the needs of your business, as well as your personal needs. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from Shana again. She'll be talking about her experience with body dysmorphic disorder, and also her suicide attempt. If you like what you've heard in today's episode, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can sign up for our mailing list at silentsuperheroes.com or like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.